beloved people. This entire week, um, we have been indeed very privileged and blessed to engage in a conversation as a church, as the body of Christ globally, because I see a lot of people tuned in many, many, many cities, some of which we have not seen before. But um, this past, uh, this week that is ending um, now, that is beginning to come to an end with Friday here, East African time, we've had the unparalleled uh, privilege of uh, looking at some very important conversation regarding the Christian walk regarding Christian salvation that our Lord Jesus brought to the church. And in this conversation, we have looked at a very important aspect of Christian salvation. I have um, endeavored to look at the message that the Lord is transmitting to the church at this hour. I know we have delayed today because of the National Council of Bishops that have convened the annual general meeting in Akuru. The more than 20,000 pastors and church leadership that is meeting there. So we, we are starting at about, uh, 35 minutes to 2, but, uh, there's no cause for worry because I'll really cover as much as there is. And then we'll continue the conversation thereafter. But uh, this past week, the Lord has led me to look at the crucifixion of the flesh, crucifying your flesh as a Christian, and all of you are very much aware that that is a very important aspect, one of the main stripes of our Christian faith, of the Christian salvation, because in addressing the doctrine of crucifying the flesh, then we essentially center the cross, the cross at the center of Christian salvation, beloved people. And uh, last, uh, I mean, we have had a few sessions, including the last session yesterday. We looked at the different aspects, the most important uh, uh, aspect of this crucifixion, the crucifying of the flesh, and it has been a very blessed time of discovery also, because in our pursuit we have been able to understand that the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah actually began at the Garden of Gethsemane. And we saw that when the Lord Jesus was undergoing travail, the suffering, the sorrow, beholding the iniquity and sin of all men, he went through unbelievable pain, agony, to the point at which he almost gave up. And the most important point the Lord is transmitting, is, is conveying in that, is that we should not take the salvation of Christ Jesus for granted. Because 
it was so heavy, it was so overbearing that he almost cracked. He almost gave up, considering that he knew no sin. He that knew no sin totally. He that is God was finally being put to sin. Being put to a place where he would be sin for us. So that was agony unbearable that we saw. And then we saw that in the process of all the cascade of events that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, that uh, there was a conflict that he talked about, the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And then after that, he moved on to the cross. When he defeated the flesh, he now moved on to the cross until he said it is finished. And uh, in that conversation, a very important instruction has come forth to the church. And so we are indeed very blessed to partake of this very wonderful salvation of Jesus and the instruction that guides us to the glorious kingdom of God. But we saw very clearly that for the church to crucify her flesh essentially implies falling directly back to the will of God. The church going back to the will of God, the will that was uh, the, the, the disobeyed, the will of God that was rejected at the Garden of Eden during the fall. And so we saw some very important and tremendous uh, instruction from this message, beloved people. And we saw very clearly that the Lord is speaking to this generation, is speaking to this current church, is telling them that for all those that aspire, that strive to enter heaven, the way that goes to heaven goes through the cross. And he says there are several ways in which the church can know that she has, or the believer, the Christian, you are out there, maybe you are in a lunch break, you are now listening to me in Nairobi, the streets of Nairobi, or you are somewhere in other cities like Frankfurt, Berlin, Munich, or up in Finland, in Vascular, Sampere, and many cities all over the world, Boryong, Bushan in South Korea, Seoul, Incheon, Wherever you are listening from, whatever the time zone, even Venezuela, I know people are tuned in the other side, all the way to Brazil. But uh, the message I wanted to bring to you, beloved people, is that the Lord is saying, there are several ways in which you can probe yourself as a Christian. The Lord gave us the Bible as the manual of our Christian salvation. So the Bible as the compass that navigates you as the church. And it says, Crucifying the flesh is critical in this age, and especially considering what the flesh has done in the church. The failure to crucify the flesh has come out very openly. The abortion with the worship team, this running around with worship leaders, ladies in their cars, the way pastors are doing it, without care of image, without care of the due benchmarks of God on righteousness or holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. These rampant false prophecy and pursuit of worldliness and all these things is in the church. So nobody can gain say on the need, the need to crucify the flesh in the church at this hour. But the, again, we say it very clearly that, uh, however, there are many ways in which the Christian believer tuned in across the earth can be able to test themselves, can be able to find out if really, am I really uh, that church 
that has overcome. I know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Am I that church that Jesus exemplified at the Garden of Gethsemane when he brought the flesh finally under the subjection of the spirit? And I say, the only way you do know that has happened in you is when now the Holy Spirit has helped you to the point where now you are walking directly in the will of God, under the will of God. And I say the will of God is holy. So you would you, you definitely know that your life is holier than before. Is righteous. That the will of God leads to sanctification. And we read quite a bit yesterday, First Thessalonians 4.3. And we say the will of God is God's eternal law. That's why in the prayer that Jesus taught, the first thing he taught, if you follow that prayer in the book of Matthew chapter 6, down there he says, and let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially he was describing to the nature, to nature, to human, the human, humanity, mankind, humankind, that look, I have come, and I'm going to have a travail at the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of it all. Remember, he had seen everything already. And in that travail, there will be a fight between the flesh and the spirit. And my role will be to connect the will of the flesh, the will of the mortal being, to make sure it aligns itself, it lines up with the will of the spirit, the will of God. So he was saying that in the prayer, our Father art in heaven, Thy kingdom come, all this, hallowed be thy name, all the way down, beloved. And then, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, he was defining to the church his mission. And my question to you, even as you are out there in the streets of Nairobi, streets of Nakuru, streets of Mombasa, listening to Miki Sumukaka, Mega Eldorate, down what's in Gishu to Kitale, all the towns of Kisi, Nyamira, Kiambu, Sika, eh, everywhere, Muranga, Nyeri, eh, all the streets down to Bondo, to all the way to, to Migori and Kehancha, whatever, all the streets of this nation and beyond. My question then to you is this. When you look at your life, do you find that the will, that the will of your being, the object, the purpose of your living, is it lined up with the will of the spirit being, the will of God the Father? That is what Jesus brought us at the Garden of Gethsemane, beloved people. He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning, I have come to finally correct the mistake that Adam and Eve had committed in the Garden of Eden, and I will enter another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And at that place, I will line up. It will be a fight, yes, because the flesh, you know, with all its demands, the flesh has this fear, all its self-preservation, the fear of, of suffering, and the fear of death. The flesh has that instinct. But in that fight, I will be able to line up the will of the mortal being with the will of God Almighty in the upper chambers of heaven, so that now the will of God be done on the earth, to give a way, to bridge fallen man with eternity, to give people a chance to enter eternity. And so we saw all that yesterday.
and the day before. And we say it very clearly that the will of God leads to the fear of God. That's the only way you know you're walking in the will of God. It is the rule of grace, I say it. And I say it, whosoever believes in Christ Jesus are sanctified and redeemed and in the will of God, the Holy Spirit helps them to persevere unto the end. When you look at your life, are you perseverant? Do you persevere? Because many a time, Christians, you know, a thing comes over and topples them over, overthrows their Christian salvation, beloved people. I say the will of God will always lead to a repentant heart. And all these things we talked about. So in other words, the Lord was saying that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the instruction onto the church, the instruction to uh, crucify the flesh, is, is essentially a call, a call to endurance, a call to obedience as we saw. We read Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 the other day, and I said, to crucify the flesh is equal to obedience. To regain, really, that which was lost in the garden. Obedience was lost in the garden of Eden, but obedience. For example, I am reading the book of Luke, chapter twenty, chapter 9, verse 23, just to get us started, beloved people, because I know I have a major, major sermon today. But it's a blessing to come to you. These are conferences that are free of charge, you know. You don't have to go to those conferences where you pay conference fee, what, what, what. So a seed to the wherever it is there. This is this is when you know it is from the Lord. When it's so free that the widows and the orphans, the poor people in the villages, those who are in the gardens, those in their boats, can access it freely without conference fee. And in those other places, of course, you know what you have said. But I said that to crucify your flesh is essentially synonymous with obedience. Meaning, have you restored obedience? The book of Luke, chapter 9, 22, for example, says the following. He says, Then he said, again, chapter 9, verse 23 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Then again, he says, and take up their cross daily. So it's a daily process. It's a work in progress, work in progress. Verse 24, it says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whosoever loses their life for me will save it. Excuse me. It's talking about losing this life you have here. It's essentially talking about the crucifixion of the flesh. You can tell that he's addressing the flesh here. But when you crucify the flesh on that cross he's talking about, you gain a greater, a greater life, a spiritual life, an eternal life. The life the flesh lives on this earth is probably between 70 to, let's say, 100 years. If you, in, in, in medical research, they also look at QOA, quality of life. So you are living 120 years, but what is your quality of life? So let's put it to 100, between 70 and 100 years. So 70 and 100 years, you cannot compare with the eternity. The eternity. There is a place at which eternity will now be very critical and crucial. Hmm? And he's saying, whosoever will lose it, eh, eh, you lose it, they will save it. Verse 25, he says, from the book of Luke chapter 9, he says, 
what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their their very self? In other words, lose your soul. Huh? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his glory, in his kingdom of glory before his Father. So it is very clear here, beloved people, that when I began this sermon uh, about crucifying the flesh, the flesh that has led to so much sexual lust in the church. I remember at one point uh, somebody came to me in one country and asked me, she, she asked me, man of God, is it a good thing for me to pray that my husband come to church and then he comes to church? In, in that country. Then I asked her, I said, my daughter, why would you ask that? You know the obvious. And she said, no, the reason I ask is because I prayed for a long time and fasted that my husband come to church in that country. And when he came to church, that same day he hooked a new girl in sexual sin, and we are now to share this baby at this moment. So, you know, this whole narrative you see, which is ashaming the church and taking away the authority of the church, it is simply happening because the flesh has not been crucified. When you bring the flesh, when you bring the flesh under the subjugated, you, you are the subjection and the authority of the spirit of the Lord. Then she is. She is the light of Christ. This past night, the Lord was speaking to me in a dream about the church that is the light of Christ. And I remember I was praying somewhere, I was admitting. And I could see that they were glowing in the darkness. They, they, were, they were shining light. Their behavior was so powerful. They were so holy. They were so righteous. That is the light of Christ. Everyone was longing to be born again. That is where the church should be. Where whatever she does, even in the marketplace, those of you who are in offices now, I mean, listen to me, or in some park or by radio during a lunch break, that, that place, at that place, you ought to shine the light of Christ. He says, you are the light of the world. That is the role of evangelism. That, that is the commissioning that the Lord Jesus gave us. But when we come to a place where our sin, the church, is worse than the sins of the world, like that question in that country where that daughter of the Lord asked me whether it was a good thing for the husband to, to pray that the husband come to church, and she said probably it would have been better for him to have kept remaining out. We were one family. Now he has another wife. So, so it was such a situation. So I say uh, crucifying the flesh is going to be fundamental and very central if the church is to see eternity. Because as you can tell, when the motto has finally been converted into immortality and the perishable into imperishability and the corruptible into incorruptibility. Then the saying that is written comes true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And he says, but the wages of sin is death. So essentially he's talking about the winning of sin. Yeah? And we know that the embodiment of sin, the vessel that sin employs, is the flesh. The carrier of sin is flesh, your flesh. So, you know, he's essentially talking about overcoming sin in the church. And so this is a very, very fundamental conversation that the present day church ought to have. You ought to ask yourself, why is it that the Christian sons 
at the universities and daughters are more, more immoral, more wicked than the others. Those even whose parents are bishops and pastors tend to be worse. Why? That means there is a fundamental flaw. There is a place at which we got it wrong and the rain began to beat the church. And so he says here that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, he says. And he says they must continue crucifying the flesh. So yesterday we looked at some very important aspect of crucifying the flesh because time is running out before I begin today, today's sermon. And uh, in yesterday's message, I read from the book of Mark chapter 15. I talked about the cup. I said that there is a cup that the Messiah talks about. And we're going to really center our conversation today on that cup. I'm going to open it up today because I want to understand I want the church to, to reach a place. My objective today is to bring you to a place where you will understand that cup. What is this cup that he says that there is a cup? He is asking, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? You know, there is a cup the Messiah beholds, the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there is a cup that the church drinks. Are they the same cup? I'm going to open it up very deep, beloved people that the church may be of great understanding. Why? Because the Bible says the only church that enters heaven will be a mature church, a church that will have understood these things very well from the bottom of their souls and inculcated, cultivated them into their daily lives, beloved people. And he says that in the garden, yesterday we saw very clearly that in the garden there is a cup, as I complete my summary for yesterday, before we begin today, in the book of Mark, it was Mark chapter 15, verses 22, all the way to 24. And I want to recap this because we have new listeners who have just come in. And this is very, very powerful and very important for their spiritual being. And entry. Mark chapter 15, it says from verse 22, when it begins, Mark 15, 22, this is what it says, beloved people. And I began from 21. The title says, the title there says the crucifixion of Jesus and the import, the lessons, the instruction God gave from that crucifixion. Now it says here, verse 21, Mark 15, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexandra and Rufus, or Rapha, was passing on the way, on his way from the country, Mashinani, from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So you can imagine the Lord Jesus was so tired he could not carry the cross. I remember too well when the Lord was calling me in Israel on Mount Carmel at that time when I was, of course, doing my studies out there. And uh, in that call when he approached me, one of the things he used to break me down, to really break me down because, you know, in your daily fight, you know, you, the systems of this world conform you. But refusing the calling, and then he showed me how Jesus was crucified. Some of these things I saw. The Lord was so tired at this point, he could not carry the cross. So a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, Raphael, if you so will, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross, meaning for the Lord. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. Again, Golgotha because it means the place of the skulls, and that hill is like a skull, but most importantly, because that is the place where the skulls were. People were executed there. People were being killed there as a punishment. 
in a place which is, of course, called the place of the skull. Verse 23. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. So I have taught previously very much about these fine spices from the book of Exodus. And I've taught very clearly about these spices, myrrh, kalamus, fragrant cane, all these, the, 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 the Holy Spirit. When the Lord was formulating, formulating the sacred anointing, the sacred anointing oil that is in the book of Exodus, when he told Moses to formulate it, the work of a perfumer, the excellence of a pharmacist, a compounding pharmacist, meaning to tremendous accuracy. I've talked about myrrh. I've said myrrh was always gotten from the back of the myrrh tree. And it was used in several ways. It was always used, sometimes bitter myrrh is crushed and the liquid that comes from there was, had some residual pharmaceutical value, antibiotic activity. And so in those days of old, they used them to actually clean clean the wounds, to sanitize the wounds, to keep away, to kill the bacteria and the wounds. But in this case here, beloved people, at this place, at this place of the skulls as we saw yesterday, when Jesus arrives there, very tired, cannot even carry his cross, they have struck his head with the metal. You know, they, 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 they were hitting him, they have torn his body, they have struck him, even the head, they hit with the metal. And when the Lord showed me this, I became dysfunctional for three months weeping and crying every day. I could not do a thing. But it's a tremendous thing that the Messiah could do this. When they arrived at this place, it was very common at this place for people to provide mere wine. It was sour wine, sour wine plus bitter herbs, including mere, bitter mere, amarga in Spanish, bitter mere, they mixed with wine. So it actually became a painkiller. So many times when people were being executed at this place, there were women of Jerusalem, the women of Jerusalem. This was public. The public provided this drink for somebody that was going to be crucified to tranquilize the pain, take away the pain of crucifixion, to sedate them. In other words, anesthesia. It's like going for a surgery and then you are anesthetized. They give you anesthesia numbness, so that you don't feel it, you don't feel the pain. So this was common practice at this place. So people always felt sorry for them, their relatives or whoever, and they brought them. The public actually felt sorry for them. But you can imagine for Christ Jesus the Messiah, they were saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They were demanding for the highest punishment for him. So you wonder, who is this that could even sympathize with him? to prepare this cup. But nevertheless, the Lord had already taken off, partaken of the cup, the cup of the wrath of God. We're going to look at that cup today. In the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm going to pull you back, and you find that that cup really is partook of it, the partaking of the cup began during the Last Supper. The Last Supper, when he took it and gave thanks, and gave it to them and said, this is the cup of my blood that is poured out unto for you. So, uh, at this place we saw yesterday, that when they gave him the cup of this painkiller, the narcotic, this 
pain, the one that should should make you numb, not to feel the pain. You can call it a stupefying kind of drug that makes you a little bit stupid, a little stupid like this and numb so you can withstand death or whatever it is. The Messiah refused this cup. He refused to drink from this second cup. And I did a great import from that yesterday. And I say that is a great indictment to the present day church. Because the Messiah wanted to suffer consciously. And I read from Matthew 27 verse 50, where he said, And after he had cried out with great, in great pain the second time, and aloud, then he gave up his spirit and died. And in Philippians chapter 2, which I'm reading right now, just to underscore this summary, and I know some people are about to get to offices, but uh, for those that will continue, please, uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2, beloved people, very, very importantly, underscores this same thing, that the Messiah consciously, he, he wanted to go through the whole profile of pain deliberately. He decided that deliberately he would go through the entire profile of pain. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, look at what he says here. He says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, the worst form of death. And of course, down there, therefore God exalts him, exalted him. And the same thing you see in the book of Isaiah 53. And when you look at John chapter 10, same thing, beloved people, verse 18, you see, the Messiah wanted to voluntarily, voluntarily give himself up so that he may now die the full course. He did not want anything that would alleviate the pain. He wanted to go through the entire pain so that he may deliver mankind. And then I asked a question yesterday for those about to return to their offices. I asked a question. I said, why is it that the present day church, when they receive the Lord Jesus and partake of the cup that we are instructed of at the Garden of Gethsemane, then later they also take this other cup prepared by the women of Jerusalem. And this other cup is a pain tranquilizer. And I said, no wonder tolerance Tolerance to pain is very low in this church, the present-day church. Me, I just want to be happy. Me, I just want a church where I am happy. Of course, yes, that is wonderful. Me, I just want to live a happy life. But the Lord is telling us to the contrary here. He says, if you walk my footprints, if you walk my footsteps, there is no way this world will love you. And so I ask the question, why is it that the present-day church when they receive the Lord, then they accept to take from the other cup that the women of Jerusalem have prepared, the cup of the narcotic, the tranquilizer, the painkiller, the one that deadens the pain. Why? fact that now they, they, they don't accept the full course of the profile of the cross to crucify the flesh. For example, they say, okay, let us, I know you are born again, but you know we are modern Christians. Let us go to the pub on Friday like this, for you, you will just drink Coca-Cola, don't worry. We will drink alcohol, but for you, because you are born again, you will drink Coca-Cola in that discotheque or in that nightclub. What is a Christian doing in a nightclub? The den of Satan. Huh? The workshop where Satan is manufacturing his things and working very hard to destroy life. Or 
you are born again, but behold, there is liberty today. So you, are, you can still wear a short mini skirt and expose your nudity before the world. What is a Christian doing dressing immoral? When the Bible speaks very clearly that, behold, you have now been purchased. You are not your own anymore. And he says, no one can combine their body with a prostitute. And he says, all of us now ought not to gratify or glorify the desires, the sinful desires of the flesh. Because he's considered to have been crucified. But you see, the present day church, even the preaching, the pastors have gone ahead to preach a sweeter message that is itching to the flesh, that has no power to deliver. 